So Frank and I were trying to find the best substitute for you at this uh, St. Lawrence Hobart game on Saturday. We were looking. We couldn't even find anybody in an Argyle sweater. So uh, we was just two of us on that pregame show. So if you'd have been at Union, you'd probably find an Argyle sweater. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Yep, we're less than a week away from Selection Sunday, everyone. Welcome back to the Around the Nation podcast. If you're tuning us in for the first time, welcome to you as well. Thanks for giving us a listen as we talk about week 10 of the 2016 Division Three football season, the podcast for November 7th, 2016. And uh, we come into this week with uh, just over half of the automatic bids clinched. Uh, Co clinched last week. Uh, Bridgewater State, Husson, Johns Hopkins, Linfield, North Central, Northwestern, Olivet, Redlands, St. Thomas, Wisconsin, Whitewater, Western New England joined them. And as far as we can tell, Thomas Moore has clinched the automatic bid out of the pack as well. It just doesn't seem anybody's uh, willing to uh, state that on the record. But uh, we're pretty sure that uh, after going through the tiebreakers, that's how it works out. And uh, Keith, that leaves us with um, 11 automatic bids to clinch. We'll talk about some of those. We'll talk about uh, some of the early looks at what the at-large pool might look like, a.k.a. Pool C, but uh, a pretty exciting week to get us to this point. Well, week 10 and week 11 are always the most interesting weeks of the of the Division Three football season, or at least of the regular season. But I think the cool thing about the list of teams you read off, Pat, is that there are, you know, about half of them we probably could have predicted or we did predict I was at gonna the say, beginning of the season. <laughs> we did. We won a whole thing where we predicted a whole bunch of stuff. Imagine, yeah. You, um, you got your Johns Hopkins, Linfield, North Central, St. Thomas, Wisconsin, Whitewater. Uh, we all saw those happening. And, you know, in the case of Whitewater and Linfield, they weren't clean sweeps all the way through. They were certainly, you know, some some doubt along the way. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more, I guess, about Whitewater on Saturday, their doubt uh, along the way. And I guess Western New England we predicted as well. But the, um, some of the seasons came as, as a little bit of a surprise. Um, I guess we predicted Husson too, but Olivet, Redlands, um, you know, Co, Bridgewater State getting back into the postseason, and then some of the teams that have a chance to clinch here in Week 11, I think, um, are you know somewhat surprising, and I think that's what makes the season interesting. You know, we can talk, I guess, is uh, it becomes kind of almost, I guess, cliche to say like. Um, Maybe that's not the right way to say it, but you know, like D three is like the same. It always has the same ending because it's Mountain Union and Whitewater, Mountain Union and St. Thomas. There's always two purple teams in Salem, but there's quite a bit of drama, I think, beforehand. You know, in the four weeks of the of the postseason before you get to Salem, these last two weeks of the season. So for a lot of folks across the country, this is the the grand finale or the. You know the the highlight of the season. That's probably a better way to put it. And uh, and I think once we get into all these clinching scenarios in, in the conferences that are up for grabs, you'll see how much uh, how exciting it can be. Definitely a highlight for the folks at Northwestern, who uh, we definitely did not predict. That was not where we went in the UMAC um, and the first trip to the NCAA playoffs for them. Uh, there will probably be some other first time NCAA playoff uh, participants. We're going to run through fairly quickly, when possible, uh, what the scenarios are in each of the rest of the conferences. You probably know what the scenario is in your conference, but, you know, maybe you don't. Maybe you're in the ODAC, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, it, it took us uh, multiple tiebreakers to even figure that out. And we're uh, not even going to try to figure all of those out. Uh, 
we're uh, going to just kind of plow ahead. A couple of easy ones, obviously, Keith. There's two places where there's a head-to-head battle coming up this week for the conference uh, automatic qualifier. That's in the Empire 8 and the Ohio Athletic Conference. Yeah, St. John Fisher goes to Alfred. Winner of that game is in. Mount Union, John Carroll, winner of that game is in as well. Even though you almost assume uh, you know, Mount Union is is going to win that game because that's kind of how it always happens. Even the years when John Carroll's really good, Mount Union has has uh, won that one. They really could throw uh, a wrench into the Pool C mix if John Carroll were, were to win, knock Mount Union down into Pool C. So if you talk about, Pat, folks who are listening and only want to know about their own conference scenario, remember that Everything in this 32-team field is a puzzle that needs to be put together by the selection committee on selection Saturday night and Sunday. And so um, these results all, all matter. Pretty much every one of them matter to you as well. So, you know, uh, St. John Fisher and, and Alfred, Mountain Union and John Carroll, both of those, um, if, if Alfred and Mountain Union win, that's, that takes two potential Pool C teams out of the mix if for whatever reason St. John Fisher and John Carroll win that could knock Alfred and could knock Mount Union into the pool C mix and it could knock two other teams out of the postseason yeah this doesn't happen nearly as often in football as it does in uh, basketball because there's no conference tournament to provide uh, that uh, mechanism for upsets at the end of the season but we still have some of those possibilities Um, and we'll talk about what uh, pool C could like could look like uh, in terms of at-larges a little bit later um, as we kind of run through these, uh, there's a couple of, I would say maybe three or four, uh, conferences where, uh, you know, teams just have to, um, finish, uh, finish out, uh, either running the table or winning out the conference. For example, Rose Holman, we talked about this last week, right? Keith, uh, Rose Holman faces Earlham. Earlham's lost, uh, 30 plus consecutive games in a row. Um, and if uh, we almost don't even need to talk about what happens if Rose Holman doesn't win that game, but there is a scenario yeah. there. Sure. And I think that's going to apply for like the next five or six conferences on the list, really, um, or even maybe more than that. There's really quite a few conferences where if the favored team, the teams out in front wins on Saturday, it's easy peasy. They're in it's, it. There's nothing to it. And then there are a bunch of conferences where if that team loses, whole you know four or five or not maybe not five but you know like there are other different ways the conference could break if the one team doesn't win so going back to the heartland rose holman and nine earlham should win that game if they don't franklin hosts hanover and if both were to lose then mount st joseph or bluffton could be back in the picture we're getting real uh, deep if we're um, entertaining the possibility of Earlham upsetting Rose Holman. Uh, Hobart's got a win at uh, win against Rochester. Uh, boy, we're going to spend a lot of time on Hobart and St. Lawrence, but we'll just briefly say um, if Hobart doesn't win that game, St. Lawrence can clinch by winning at WPI. Uh, if they both lose and Springfield wins, there could be a three-way tie, which we won't try to try to try to break similarly we spent a lot of time talking about the north coast athletic conference last week because we needed to wait for the game between wabash and denison this week wabash defeated denison uh making it uh, a heck of a lot easier wittenberg is in if they beat allegheny and allegheny is one and eight uh so that's a that's another instance where the uh where the path is pretty easy and it's right in front of them yeah, you didn't. You mentioned, uh, or you didn't mention, Rochester one and seven. So all three of those teams should win pretty easily. If uh, if Wittenberg does beat Allegheny, it would render the Mona Bell game uh, between eight and one Wabash, seven and two DePaul. It would render that result 
uh, moot for, for Pool A, not necessarily for Pool C. And in the NJAC, almost the exact same scenario. Wesley would clinch with a home win against 2-7 and seven William Patterson, and that would render the Regents' Cup game between 8-1 and one Frostburg State and 7-2 and two Salisbury would, would render that pretty much moot. Yeah, which if you are uh, a team that's not in... That's not Frostburg State, shall we say, and is hoping for an at-large bid. You're going to root for Salisbury in that game and hope that uh, they can knock Frostburg down. Although that doesn't necessarily completely eliminate uh, um, the NJAC from taking an at-large bid. It does make it a little more difficult. So that's a, that's a place where you're going to want to root for uh, for something like that if you are hoping for an at-large bid. Let's see. Uh, Monmouth has to beat Knox to wrap up, uh, finish putting the bow on the Midwest Conference, or McAllister losing as St. Norbert. Um, this is a conference that's got 11 teams in just nine games, so Monmouth and McAllister did not meet this year. Uh, Monmouth hasn't uh, has lost to Knox, I think, once in the 18-year history of D3Football.com. So, um, the uh, if if the bronze turkey moves from uh, Monmouth to Knox, then a whole lot of other things are going to happen. Kind of like, I don't know, things that might have happened in Wrigleyville over the course of the past week, that sort of thing. Wow. Yeah, the real interesting thing to me in this case and in and, and the pack as well is that the two conferences with the unbalanced schedules have the, uh, you know, they, the, the teams, the key teams didn't meet this year. Monmouth and McAllister didn't play. Case Western Reserve and Thomas Moore didn't play. And it's it, just unfortunate, I guess. Yeah, I mean, McAllister, can, it can be moot also. McAllister plays St. Norbert this week, so uh, St. Norbert could obviously make that a non-factor. Um, and Monmouth can make it a non-factor with a win. Let's see. If you're looking at the top of the Northern Athletics Collegiate Conference, the NAC, it, uh, it looks kind of crazy because there's three teams tied with one loss in the uh, conference standings. But actually, all Lakeland has to do is just finish out with a win versus Rockford. Uh, they're tied with Aurora and Benedictine, but they've beaten both of them head-to-head. So this is one of those uh, three-way ties that doesn't need a three-way tiebreaker. And another conference that looked like it, it, it got crazy on Saturday because Stevenson lost to, to Wilkes. Um, thought the mat, that would throw the Mac in, uh, into whack, out of whack. Anyway, <laughs> I, I didn't want to make near a rhyme. The, near the whack? Zach, the Lego maniac. Remember that? Anyway. No. Uh, good. Well, the Mac. Um, Stevenson only needs to win uh, at three and six, Lycoming. And even though Lyco's been kind of, um, they've been in pretty, pretty much every game this season. Um, and, and obviously, Stevenson lost to a three and six team uh, on Saturday. So it's certainly no gimme. Um, they should probably bounce back. And if they don't, Albright could clinch with a win at Lebanon Valley. And if both of them lose, the uh, Keystone Cup rivalry, uh, Delaware Valley at Widener, that winner would be in a three-way tie with the Mustangs and the Lions. Yeah, it would be an interesting three-way tie, though, because uh, Stevenson would have lost, still has lost to a team that's not going to work its way into that three-way tie, which is still, I'm still, uh, I'm still kind of, my head's still kind of buzzing about that Stevenson-Wilkes game. We'll have to talk about that a little bit more coming up later in the podcast. Um, Keith, do you want to tell us about the Old Dominion Athletic Conference? Sure. Randolph-Macon, the, the fine alma mater, uh, can make this quite all ever so simple by, uh, by beating Hampton-Sydney. Uh, they would clinch with a win. They're 8-1 and one right now. And uh, if the Yellow Jackets lose, a lot is in play. Just like you mentioned with a Mac, it, it would... However the ties shake out, it wouldn't be a clean tie between, you know, there's always those three-way ties where each team's beaten the other team and lost to the other one. Well, in the ODAC, 
that the tie would be a three-way tie uh, with, with five and two teams. Basically, uh, Washington, Lee, Emory and Henry, and Shenandoah are all still alive if uh, if Hampton Sydney beats Randolph-Macon. It hurts me just to say that. Um, <laughs> Sorry. The, <laughs> the Generals and, uh, and, and Hornets face off. Uh, on Saturday at Shenandoah, so it can't be a four-way tie, but a three-way tie with each team five and two in conference play would make it a difficult tie to break. So here's to the Yellow Jackets just making it easy. You remember the year that there was a four-way tie for first at four and two? I do remember that. I believe Randolph Macon won that, <laughs> broke that tie. I believe you did, and then it's, uh, I think you got uh, sent to Mount Union. Is that right? In the first round, and the reward for winning your conference with a four and two record is a 56-0 first-round loss in Alliance. The, uh, the 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 folks at St. Lawrence were very concerned about not getting sent to Alliance. Um, you know, I told them ten and zero teams tend to not get sent to Alliance Ohio in the first round. Um, and yeah, there we are. Let's see USA South. So Huntington ha- uh, can uh, finish this off with a W because they beat Maryville on Saturday. Uh, they are at Averett, which is four and four. If that doesn't happen, Maryville could uh, clinch by beating Greensboro. And if both lose, Keith has done this uh, great uh, set of notes here. If both lose, Ferrum, Averett, and North Carolina Wesleyan could be in the mix. North Carolina Wesleyan plays at Ferrum. So there we go. Yeah, you just have to work all these scenarios out just in case. And and honestly, like we didn't even, we, we didn't even completely work the the ODAC scenario out. We're just kind of fingers crossed that uh, that it that it doesn't come to that or. Or that, uh, and I did go to the ODAC website to see if they had it all worked out, and they kind of had the same type down there too. Like, eh, there's a whole bunch of other scenarios in play, but um, you know, we won't, we won't worry about those for folks, right now. Folks on the message board have been uh, doing the math and going through the uh, comparative scores and that sort of thing in the ODAC. Uh, well, good for them. I should probably still read the message board. I kind of only get stuck reading the comments on the top 25 posts anymore because that's where all the action is. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of those too. That's for sure. There's a, there, there's some of the few, uh, comments on the internet that you can actually read without, uh, tearing your hair out or your uh, eyes bleeding or whatever. So that's good. Well, ever so appropriate timing given uh, Tuesday. Can't wait. Let's get that thing over with. Um, so those are the easy ones. The, the pack we kind of mentioned. Uh, Thomas Moore's done. Uh, they're in the clubhouse at nine and one. They win the tiebreaker. As far as we can tell, uh, they've clinched the automatic bid. But uh, you know, the the pack site hasn't uh, um, hasn't acknowledged that. Um, the Thomas Moore hasn't acknowledged that. Uh, I was getting the fail whale from Twitter. Um, well, not the actual fail whale because I think they got rid of the actual whale, but. Uh, I couldn't even get uh, Pack on Twitter here. Yeah, I don't see anything new here that suggests what uh, we believe to be true. Um, but uh, as far as we could tell, they had uh, wrapped up the tiebreaker in that as well. So that should be another team that's clinched an automatic bid. And Case Western has got to f- uh, look to finish out and go 10-0. and 0. And uh, that would be pretty much guaranteeing themselves an at-large bid. We've only ever had one other instance where a uh, an unbeaten team has gone into Pool C and they got in. And I can't imagine they wouldn't here either. Yeah, but I think it gets pretty dicey for Case Western Reserve if they lose. Now they're at home against Carnegie Mellon, um, which is uh, a pretty decent team. Yes, they're 6-3 and three this season. Um, and... Um, Case, you know, kind of had to survive on Saturday against uh, against Westminster, 
of Pennsylvania. They rallied uh, from down 15-0 at the half. They needed a, a, a fumble late. So there's no guarantee that that uh, Case beats Carnegie Mellon. But if they do, they're 10-0. They're in good shape. And I think if they don't win and they're 9-1, their they're at-large bid chances are very dicey. One other conference we haven't talked about, and we didn't talk about it last week because it was uh, almost too complicated to talk about. Things have clarified themselves a little bit in the Southern Athletic Association, uh, where we have a, a tie for first place, but two of the teams, a three-way tie for first place, but two of them play each other this week. So uh, Barry plays center this week, and uh, Washu is the third team in that tie. So if Washu wins and Barry wins, then Washu wins the automatic bid. If uh, WashU and Center win, Center wins the automatic bid because Center beat WashU earlier in the season. Now, if WashU loses, then the Barry Center winner wins the automatic bid outright. Uh, and WashU, just for uh, the complete picture, WashU plays its arch rival, of course, University of Chicago here to close the season. And that's the craziest scenario as we as it stands right now, but. As things start to break on Saturday, there could be other conferences that get uh, a little more kooky and we start to have to really compute those tiebreakers. It's kind of I don't know if it's I think it's kind of fun to do it in real time, but hopefully all the conferences will have had the tiebreakers kind of set out and publicized in advance so that, uh, you know, when you see the results roll in, we'll all know what they mean. I think the real big picture takeaway from this is that there are all these games where if the the favorite team just wins, everything, you know, everything is is clean. That you know you clinch. There's no problems. But I think it, there there have been a couple seasons in the past. I, w- I want to say like 2002, maybe another one, you know, 09 or 2010 around there, where a bunch of weird results happen on the same week 11 Saturday and it throws pool C into the mix and a team backs in uh, maybe it was even 08 when Wheaton backed in into in, in well not backed in but kind of a whole bunch of results had to break a certain way for Wheaton to even get in and then Wheaton won a few rounds those kind of weekends do happen not every year but every few years and so if if this particular Saturday especially if you're a team that's way down on the pool C bubble um, if certain results break a certain way you know things could get crazy your team could back in uh, if they don't break your way you know you could you could still finish 9 and 1 and have almost no shot yeah we almost always end up with a, a 9 and 1 team that doesn't get in uh lately we have ended up with a couple of two loss teams that have gotten in um and we're going to take a, a bit of a look at what the at large scenario looks like first of all um you you can never clinch a pool b bid these are the ones that are set aside for people who aren't in a conference that has an automatic bid um but mary harden baylor has the pool b bid wrapped up there's uh they won't spend more than about 15 seconds discussing that on selection saturday night selection sunday morning because that's just a box that you need to check mary harden baylor's in the field uh even if they uh, even if they lose on Saturday and finish nine and one, they're still gonna uh, they're still gonna get in the tournament. Um, that's the easiest at large decision that the committee has to make, and I think the second easiest one is uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh, which is uh, eight and one, uh, lost a uh, a narrow game at Whitewater on the road, uh, one and one against regionally ranked opponents, and with uh, the top strength of schedule in Division three, you know Oshkosh is I think very easily the first team in the field. Uh, Harden Simmons is uh, very easily in the field. Remember, we only get to pick six of these guys. Uh, Wheaton's looking pretty good. Uh, 
uh, as well. And those are the three easy ones. And from there, you know, it probably gets a little dicey and we will do a more formal uh, projection of the field on uh, uh, Wednesday evening, Thursday morning, once the regional rankings come out. But uh, just taking a quick look here, if you think about it this way, Keith, those three undefeated, or, or those three one-loss teams, plus Case Western, present, uh, presumably entering the field undefeated, leaves us just two, and we haven't even talked about, we haven't even mentioned St. John's, we haven't mentioned anybody from the East region, um, we haven't mentioned Muhlenberg, who's gotten at-large bids in the past. We haven't mentioned Wisconsin-Platteville. Yeah, I think this thing could get extra crazy, too, if uh, if St. John Fisher beats Alfred. Yep. Alfred, Alfred right now, 9-0, and knock them uh, onto pool, or into Pool C. And right now, with a 552 strength of schedule, which would go up by virtue of playing St. John Fisher, Alfred would be a strong case for an at-large bid. Absolutely. So you so. Yep. If you're a team, a fan of a team whose uh, team is on the bubble, you want Alfred to beat St. John Fisher because St. John Fisher won't have a chance at, as an at-large team. I think you also want uh, Mount Union to beat John Carroll. Mount Union would clinch the the automatic bid. John Carroll would be eight and two and, and not have a chance in uh, in Pool C. So you want those results to break your way, uh, Pat. If you do get to that point, and I think you mentioned it, Oshkosh, no brainer. Harden Simmons and Wheaton, their strength of schedule, uh, both around 550. Uh, they only have a, a, a right now one loss to uh, to an undefeated team, uh, although that's not criteria. That's sort of subjective. Um, those two teams, I think they're in easy. They do have um, – all of them have regional results. Oshkosh has a win over somebody. It's not just to who you, know, who you lost to, but Oshkosh has beaten Platteville. Uh, Harden Simmons beaten East Texas Baptist Wheaton uh, may or may not end up with a, with a win over regionally ranked opponent, depending on on if uh, someone like Illinois Wesleyan creeps in there. But all three of those teams have a good case. St. John's would also have a pretty good case if they beat Concordia Moorhead on Saturday. They would be one and one against regionally ranked opponents. Um, they would have they would have uh, lost to St. Thomas beaten Concordia Moorhead. I'm assuming that Concordia Moorhead stays ranked. Uh, St. John's strength of schedule isn't very good, but uh, but having that regionally ranked opponent would, would certainly help them. So if you get to a point where the teams in are Oshkosh, Harden-Simmons, Wheaton, Case Western Reserve, Unbeaten, and St. John's, then you're looking at, really for the last bid, uh, a bunch of teams who are, um, I guess, fairly similar in, in a lot of ways and don't have there, there's no no-brainers for that last spot uh, I'll just run off a few of the few of the teams Pat and you tell me what you think um, Platteville would be on the board with the huge strength of schedule but two losses uh, Muhlenberg maybe from the south uh, with a sub 500 strength of schedule uh, Barry could be in there if uh, if Wash U wins the uh, takes the AQ um, Wabash really really low strength of schedule 450 right now uh, so if Wittenberg um, wins the uh, automatic qualifier. Wabash is, is deep on the bubble. St. Lawrence, sub-500, and just the one loss against a region-ranked opponent. And then Frostburg State, Salve, um, probably would be uh, not even get to the board because they'd be behind St. Lawrence. Yeah, I think Frostburg State probably hops St. Lawrence if they beat Salisbury on Saturday. Um, and again, presuming that... Uh, uh, all sorts of other things happen, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'd be interested to see if St. John Fisher doesn't still, if they lose to Alfred, St. John Fisher might still end up ahead of both Frostburg and St. Lawrence 
and uh, and be a two loss team on the board as well. We could end up with two loss teams on the board for that final spot in both the West and the East. Um, yeah, their case would be very similar to Wisconsin Platteville in that they'd have the high strength of schedule, they'd have the results against regionally ranked opponents, but they would have two losses. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the committee has uh, certainly uh, taken St. John Fisher before. Um, the committee's taken a one-loss Muhlenberg in almost the exact same resume. Uh, I was actually, I don't even remember the context of the rest of the conversation, but I was referring to s- some team's resume as a Muhlenberg resume. They played nobody else, lost to the uh the, the, the champion in their conference and have a, a very ordinary strength of schedule. Um, and that's exactly the same resume that uh, Muhlenberg presents at the moment. Strength of schedule uh, under 500, although, again, all of these numbers will change uh, with the one more game yet to be played on all of these schedules. Um, you know, if the board were to come down to, let's say, hypothetically, Platteville, St. John Fisher, Muhlenberg, and then uh, Wabash, I guess. Yep. I don't. I think they stay. I think they would be ahead of John Carroll with a John Carroll loss. Then I uh, will. We would spend a lot of time on Saturday night uh, hashing through that uh, hashing through that last spot on the board because I think we'd have some interesting discussion uh, on it on our selection, our mock selection show on Saturday night. And folks, if you're out there and you've never listened uh, to the mock selection show. Uh, do it Which this we've year done one time. I think we did. Have we done it just once? No, we've done it more than once. Have we done it twice? There, there was at least more. I think uh, Greg's been on it more than once. Okay. Wow. The years run together. Go on. In any case, um, the cool part about the show is you guys walk through how the committee would actually do it, and and once folks out there understand how it works, it's actually kind of. I don't know about simple to follow, but you can you can kind of follow the five main criteria. You can follow how there are only four teams being discussed at any one time rather than the whole giant pool of, of everyone who's eligible. And, and that the show is really helpful, I think, especially if you're a team who's uh, who's, you know, nine and one or, or eight and two from a really good conference. There are also going to be a bunch of teams that finish eight and two that really have no shot. They'll never get to the board. But folks don't always understand just how many teams finish eight and two and how few at large bids there are. So um, there's, there's one team that we haven't discussed that may have a case and they would need some results to break their way. Um, But uh, Concordia Moorhead, because they're one of their losses is to an NAIA team, they would need to beat St. John's and hope for Platteville to lose at Wisconsin lacrosse. Uh, They also don't have a very good strength of schedule, but they could get to the board theoretically and that actually may be a scenario where teams like Muhlenberg and Frostburg State they want those results to break that way because Concordia Moorhead um, may not have a better case for for selection yeah it's it's going to be so interesting if if Concordia Moorhead is in that position Keith because uh yeah the non-division three loss is not usually considered it's not part of the main five criteria but by the time you get to the end of any at-large discussion Everything's on the table, including results against uh, non-division three schools, um, you know that sort of thing. So, and and it's it's not a good loss. Uh, nope, the for, Jamestown Jimmies are four and six. Well, that's up this morning. That's better than they used to be. I think at one point it was uh, it was one and six or one and five. So it's a it's slightly better, but not great. Um, and 
Yeah, we've uh, I we've had a, some discussion about that out here in the uh, upper Midwest about what uh, what that might look like. So that'll be interesting. Um, and like I said, uh, we will do a uh, we'll do a, a mock bracket on uh, Wednesday night for Thursday morning uh, because there will be a, a set of regional rankings on Wednesday night. Um, then of course you know they're gonna blow it all to heck by playing another uh, set of games on on Saturday this week. But uh, we will take that and those results and and uh, put together that uh, mock selection show on Saturday night. So uh, we will have. Uh, information for you about uh, when to listen to that. And then, of course, the real selection show in the evening on Sunday from NCA.com. I don't know a whole lot of details about that at the moment uh, or, you know, whether they're going to come back to uh, have me on the show or not again. That'll be, uh, I'll, I'll, be uh, I'll be waiting to find out about that, I suppose. But we'll have information about that, too, as well. It is the biggest day of the year here at D3Football.com coming up next Sunday, the uh, 13th. So um, if you're looking for stuff about Division Three football, oddly enough, D3Football.com is the place to get it. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, we were talking quite a lot about the Hobart-St. Lawrence game, and that's because that's where I was on Saturday. Plus, it, it turned out to be a pretty interesting game in terms of playoff selections and I had an opportunity to talk with uh, Frank Rossi one of our colleagues and the uh, one of the members of the in the huddle podcast uh, after that game and as mentioned I'm joined by Frank Rossi Frank and I uh, met each other at the uh, St. Lawrence Hobart game up in uh, to say this is upstate New York is kind of belies the term upstate uh, because if upstate is Albany or to some people Westchester County this is like suburban Canada but uh, what a uh, what a what an afternoon for a game and a and a, and a great atmosphere and uh, Hobart didn't have to come back at the last minute to uh, win this game and in a lot of senses it seemed like they had the game in, in control and in hand against St. Lawrence for the majority of it for majority until a uh, safety uh, caused by holding in the end zone you don't see it too often but we knew right away what was going to be called when we saw the flag come up and uh, at that point it was a 10 point lead the Safety made it eight, and St. Lawrence comes down uh, to around the 50 or 45-yard line of Hobart on the ensuing kickoff to uh, then eventually score a touchdown and missed the two-point conversion. So it was 20 to 18, and Hobart had to bounce back. Shane Sweeney and Brandon Shedd were the names, especially that played the role in that happening, and the offensive line in protecting Sweeney. That touchdown and missed two-point conversion comes with a buck 34 left to go in the third quarter. And then the, the final 16 minutes is, is almost basically entirely Hobart, both on the offensive end, but especially on the defensive end, where they started to uh, they, they started to get to Sean Richardson. And the, some of the things that weren't working for St. Lawrence earlier but weren't necessarily hurting them began to really hurt them. I think one of the things that I saw, I made a couple of notes, uh, like the, the the deep passing game just looked completely out of sync for St. Lawrence all day. Uh, St. Lawrence uh, underthrew a lot of deep balls. Uh, looked like they were just throwing uh, jump balls in the end zone and just was not a particularly effective way to move the ball. Yeah, and they still were using, let's say, Vincenzo Ferrero and some of their receivers decently. Their tight ends, which really, they double as receivers. They're uh, big bodies to throw to. He was doing that effectively to start the third quarter as Richardson, but as the game, the second half went along, he seemed to be failing at that and was running for his life. He's kind of a read option quarterback where he will use his legs, and they didn't really allow him to do that until the second half began, and that was getting them some momentum at certain points in time. But then you're right. 
when there was basically a spy put on him, you know, Hobart became aware they needed to do something to stop him from running 15 yards downfield on them. He didn't seem to know how to react with the pass game again. And you got to give uh, James Hedger a lot of credit for two late sacks that were big, incredible sacks at the uh, times of the game that they occurred because it stopped any forward momentum that St. Lawrence seemed to have. And Hedger, uh, ironically, is from Rochester, New York, and uh, th- that's going to be a place that plays a role next week. More on that later. But Hedger and his defensive crew deserve a lot of kudos because coming into the game, we were talking all about the St. Lawrence defense as being the stronger of the two, probably. I, walking, from, walking away from this game, it just felt like it was the Hobart defense that was the stronger of the two. One other kind of major big picture observation I made, and I've seen a lot of uh, MIAC. I've spent three consecutive weekends in the WIAC watching Wisconsin conference games. Uh, I saw uh, Linfield, Mary Harden, Baylor. So I've seen a lot of the top teams. This game played not at the same speed. You know, this game is a little bit slower. And I know, I'm sure some of it is because, you know, this game is played on grass. I think that slows things down just naturally a little bit. But also, it, it just seemed like, you know, comparing this game to some of the stuff that I've seen this year, these teams are not quite on that level. Yeah, and I agree with you having gone out and about over the years uh, with the D3 football crew and whatnot. It, it, there probably is a slight change, if not a moderate change in speed uh, of the game. I think also, though, you have to remember that there were some nerves in this game. This was a pretty big game uh, for both teams and had that championship game feel to it. So there was an early chess match going on where I think some people were too much on the backs of their heels instead of trying to just play full speed forward. Uh, but I think if you're trying to make comparisons to teams right now, like the Mary Harden Baylors and the Linfields, it's probably not the right comparison to make. Uh, can the team that comes out of this conference compete in the East? Uh, you know, teams like Wesley and Salisbury, uh, Wesley obviously beat Salisbury today, but, you know, can they compete against a team like that? Yeah, I think they can. Will they win? You know, maybe a 60-40 against a chance uh, in that situation. But I just think that when you name the top 10 teams in the country, you're not going to see a Liberty League team right now beat one of those teams. But who knows? Down the line, as you get playoff games under your wings and you know you start to get the confidence and better players along the way with more speed, things can change. So for now, we'll see who makes it out of this conference. Then we'll see how they fare in the playoffs, especially especially in the early rounds. Uh, Hobart still controls its own destiny. They play Rochester next week to try to wrap up the Liberty League title. Uh, Frank, we will see you down in Salem on the sideline for our Stag Bowl broadcast, if not before. Good to see you this weekend. Thank you, sir. And quick hits on thir- on Fridays, excuse me, uh, Friday mornings, so you can see just how wrong I am many times. Frank, of course, jumping the gun a little bit. We're not going to talk about uh, how poorly or well he might have done in quick hits until a little bit later. Uh, In fact, I want to take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by Nobody. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division III football, coaches who need new equipment, influence decisions to replace turf, all sorts of things by sponsoring the Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here before we went to break. Think about it and drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. We had more than 1,250 unique listens to last week's podcast, uh, even when you count me listening to it on the plane on the way out to uh, Burlington, Vermont. You are missing out. And let me tell you, the traffic's only going to get bigger here over the course of the next few weeks. This is a, uh, this is a significant opportunity to get in at the right time of the season. All 
All right. Well, we're more than a half hour into this podcast. Did you know that this was going to be a long one? Uh, so we're going to move into game balls, and I'm, I'm giving my game ball for Week 10 to Wilkes freshman quarterback Jose Tabora. Uh, this guy might not make this week's team of the week because of his three interceptions, but he was clutch in the third and fourth quarters when the Colonels were try- uh, rallying to defeat Stevenson 38-35 to on Saturday. Threw for three touchdowns, uh, plus a two-point conversion, and was 30-48 for 48 passing for 453 yards in the win against the number 14 Mustangs. Stevenson hadn't given up more than 260 yards passing all week, uh, all season, that is, until the past two weeks, in which Kings threw for 320, and then Wilkes and Tabora threw for that 453. And just what an unexpected place for Wilkes to pick up win number three on the season. Well, you could see why Stevenson didn't give up a lot of passing yards on pretty much all the second-half highlights for Wilkes. They had players in position. Uh, some of the, the Tabora touchdown passes, the first one was into coverage, the second one was into double coverage, and the last one was into triple coverage. And each time the Wilkes guys uh, won the jump ball in the end zone. For my game ball, and that actually kind of segues kind of well, I, I appreciate defense here. So I split mine uh, between a pair of defenses and special teams Groups that uh, came up big when their teams needed it over and over again on Saturday. Uh, Wisconsin-Whitewater won by a hair in overtime, and it, and it doesn't even get that far without each of the seven turnovers by River Falls. The seventh turnover, of course, ended the game in overtime. Some were fumbles that landed right in the Warhawks' hands. Twice it was muffed punts by River Falls. And some were those, uh, yeah, it's as good as a punt, interceptions. But in a neck-and-neck game, and and there were tons of them in in Week 10, seven turnovers is as big as it gets. Meantime, uh, Wash U's D gave up 46 points against Hendricks, but forced five turnovers and blocked a potential game-tying field goal with two minutes left. Sure, there were better statistical days. Ithaca only allowed 195 yards against Buffalo State. Husson only allowed 199 against Norwich. And St. Thomas held Gustavus Adolphus to 128. But no defenses came up bigger than those of the Warhawks and the Bears. And we're going to make a spin move out of our normal rundown for a second and talk about Whitewater, Mary Harden, Baylor, Mount Union. Uh, Whitewater, of course, survived in overtime. It looks like the Warhawks are definitely banged up right now, especially on offense. Uh, At least one starting lineman is out, one tight end hurt. Uh, Drew Patterson didn't get any touches after the first series of the third quarter, and that's a pretty big blow if he's out for more than a week or so as well. Yeah, the Warhawks went with Cam Molly and Chris Nelson for almost all their run plays. Uh, Molly a running back, Nelson a quarterback. And they went with uh, Cole Wilbur to Marcus Hudson for most of the passing in the second half of that game. It's such an obvious key that in the playoffs, Whitewater might actually be able to fool some defenses by doing the opposite with that personnel in the game. Yeah. Big picture, not having settled on a quarterback for Whitewater only puts them in a place where a lot of playoff-bound teams actually are. There are some that are still flip-flopping. And there are some who are rolling with an inexperienced player, a couple of starting freshmen for, for important teams, uh, with two huge exceptions being Linfield and Sam Riddle and Mary Harden-Baylor and Blake Jackson, those two teams going into the playoffs with very experienced quarterbacks. When it comes to the top 25 voting, there's a lot to ponder when it comes to the top five. And this was kind of tough for me when I was putting my ballot together on Sunday morning. Whitewater had its close call on Saturday in a game it very well could have lost. Uh, and as tempting as it is to ding them for that, the Warhawks have beaten three teams with seven or more wins, including NAIA number five Morningside, which has won its eight games by an average of 52.25 points. And uh, they lost to the Warhawks by 14. Mary Harden Baylor also has three wins over teams with seven or more wins. Linfield, Harden Simmons, and East Texas Baptist. 
St. Thomas survived in a close call a few weeks back against Concordia Moorhead the way the Warhawks survived on Saturday against River Falls. But St. Thomas also beat a seven-win team, uh, as well, or they beat that seven-win team, that team being Concordia Moorhead, as well as eight-win St. John's. Mountain Union, meanwhile, they've been typically dominant as they've settled on quarterback Dom Davis, and they've uh, only given up 14 points the past four games and 66 all season, but their best wins are against 5-4 and four Ohio Northern and Heidelberg. 8-1 and one John Carroll is the opponent this Saturday, as, as we're all well aware by this point in the podcast. And uh, we'll get some indication as to where this Mountain Union team belongs after that game. Usually we make exceptions to logic because Mountain Union is Mountain Union. So I think really you could make a case for for Whitewater landing anywhere in the top four. Uh, and really you could make a case for any of the top four teams landing anywhere in the top four. I don't know if there's a wrong way to order Mountain Union, Mary Harden, Baylor, St. Thomas, and Wisconsin Whitewater. I was one of the people, and many people did, I, I was one of the people who moved Whitewater. I wasn't voting Whitewater number one. I've been in the Mary Harden-Baylor camp for uh, several weeks now. But, uh, yeah, I, I made a change, uh, and several other people did as well. And uh, if you uh, looked at the number one votes, there's uh, now down to 13 for Mount Union, 10 of them for Mary Harden-Baylor, and uh, the other two uh, split between Whitewater and uh, St. Thomas. So it'll be interesting uh, uh, to see how that poll works next week uh, with the result of the John Carroll Mount Union game. I could see, Keith, that if uh, Mount Union wins that game and wins it handily, that uh, Mount Union might get a couple of those first place votes back. Yeah, and, and the real interesting thing when the poll came out on Sunday was that Mary Harden Baylor jumped from uh, three to two, finally, even though they've had more number one votes than Wisconsin Whitewater for several weeks now. Yeah, they just didn't have nearly as many number two votes. It was a, it was a, a consensus number two uh, in uh, a lot of cases for Wisconsin Whitewater. Well, we're up to the interview portion of our podcast, and let's see, we haven't talked nearly enough about uh, Hobart and St. Lawrence, but I actually do want to uh, preface this by saying, you remember, uh, we I gave Shane Sweeney my game ball last week, week before, something like that, had, uh, uh, you know, he's led his team to so many last-minute finishes and last-minute wins. They did not need to do one of those on Saturday. I have to, I've been asking a couple of people this question here over the course of the afternoon. What's it like to not have to throw the game-winning touchdown in the final two minutes of the game today? Oh, it's definitely less stressful. And Actually, my parents came over and were talking to me about it, and they said, you know, this is, this is much better than it's been the last five weeks, and it took a lot of stress off everybody. So it was a great game by us, and, you know, we're excited to move on from here. Do you feel that stress when you're in the middle of it? Uh, you know, not really. I just know that we have. I just know we have to score the ball and move the ball down the field. I don't. I try not to think about it too much because that's when you know you're more prone to mistakes when you're thinking about things too much. So you just go out carefree and play the game. One of the things we were talking about today was the big performance, of course, by uh, Brandon Shed. Twelve catches, two hundred and forty-one yards. Uh, he had eight catches at the half, um, and then you know you uh, you found some other options in the third quarter. Went away from him a little bit. Um, you know, were they doing something differently against him in the uh, in the third quarter, or were you just kind of getting other guys involved? At first, they were playing man on Brandon, and you know I've said at the beginning of the year when Brandon's. Uh, matched up man with anybody you know in the country I'm gonna throw him the ball because I trust him and he's a great player makes huge plays for us the uh, second half they came out more cover two, played a safety over the top of them to limit the big plays so we started going underneath to our other guys our slot receivers and you know they did a great job as well yeah, but the mismatch first of all the mismatch is just striking from a physical standpoint um, but certainly from an X's and O's standpoint it's it's probably even more pronounced 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's he's a great physical player. He makes great plays for us, and you know he's done it all year for us, and he just continues to do it again today. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, the rest of the offense. I mean, obviously, to say it's a pass-oriented offense is probably a, a, a under-exaggerating, underselling it a little bit. But uh, you know, Jack Full obviously has had some great games. The receiver had some big catches for you guys as well. Tell me a little about your other receivers. Oh, Jack Full did a great job. All those guys do such a great job during practice during the week. They work, they work, they work really hard. They're, you know, they work in the off season. They worked really hard. We're, we're just great communication between us. We have great chemistry, and you know, it really shows on the field. If you have to run the ball, what happens? <laughs> We'll run the ball. It's you know work behind our linemen. Our line did it. Our line did a great job today, pass protecting. They did, when we did run the ball, they had some great holes for us too. So, all right. So uh, one game left in the regular season. You guys need to beat Rochester next Saturday to clinch the automatic bid, and then uh, you guys have the opportunity to go back to the playoffs. What's it like, especially you know coming back with so many last-second wins to be back in this position? Uh, you know we just gotta we gotta really focus on this week and not think about the playoffs, not think about the championship. Just focus up on Rochester. Take the game. You know how we game plan we got to take it serious and you know come out come away with a win hopefully and you know hold the plaque after that okay so we've beaten that path in terms of the Hobart St. Lawrence game quite a bit here on this podcast so let's go off the beaten path for a moment and uh, do so I'm going to go to the New Jersey Athletic Conference we talk frequently about what's going on at the top of this league but there was a quadruple overtime game at the other end of the spectrum in which TCNJ defeated Southern Virginia 28-25 on Saturday Tied up 14 apiece after regulation. Teams traded chip shot field goals in the first overtime. Southern Virginia missed a field goal in the second overtime, but dodged a bullet by forcing a turnover. Uh, let's see, both teams scored a touchdown and, and succeeded on their mandatory two-point conversion attempts in the third overtime. And after Southern Virginia missed a field goal from 38 yards out, Brian Nagy hit from 25 to give TCNJ its first conference win of the season. Southern Virginia missed three of its four field goal attempts in that loss. Ouch. For my off-the-beaten-path highlight, well, it wasn't the biggest game with a title on the line in New England, but Bridgewater State and Framingham State outdid their former Nefsi brethren, Western New England and Salve Regina, for drama. Olubi Oho blocked Framingham State's point after following the Rams' opening touchdown in overtime, and the Bears ran the ball six times in a row, five by Malik Garrett, and Russ Bolarino's point after was good for the win and the playoff bid for Bridgewater State. What was the final score in that one? I don't have that handy. 28-27. All right. Um, hey, I have a 28-27 game here, too. Uh, uh, my most surprising result, actually, is uh, Luther beating Warburg in overtime by that score. First win uh, for Luther at their arch rival since 1986. First win for the Norse on any field in this series since 2005. Luther went for the two-point conversion in the win, and they got it on a toss to Cooper Nelson. Uh, this rivalry had become one of those that was hard to continue calling a rivalry because it was so one-sided, but perhaps this game will breathe a little bit of life back into it. The impressive part was Luther going for two at the end of the first overtime. Usually, you know, as you mentioned, Pat, it, it's not till the third overtime where going for two is mandatory. Uh, the Norse were just uh, pretty gutsy on Saturday. For my surprising result, Dickinson scored 34 points in October and was coming off a 72-7 loss to Muhlenberg, yet the Red Devils found a way to score 37 on Saturday and bring home the Little Brown Bucket by beating rival Gettysburg. Dickinson, a team that had lost its first eight games and had every reason to, to pack it in, down 24-10, instead rallied to score 17 points in the fourth quarter on a couple of Billy Berger touchdown runs and a Stephen Walker field goal with three minutes left. Gettysburg then rallied on a 10-play drive for a tying field goal of its own with 22 seconds left. So 
So the two teams went into overtime. They traded touchdowns. And then Gettysburg missed from 42 on its possession in the second overtime. Walker hit from 27. And the Red Devil seniors walk off the field in the final home game victorious. Certainly wasn't the season they wanted, but they're showing some heart in that game that they can be proud of for a long, long time. For my stat of the week, I'm looking at points allowed by St. John's. The, the Johnnies have allowed just 16 points in the past four games, including six on Saturday in a 42-6 home win versus Hamlin. Of course, the combined record of those four opponents is just 8-21 and 21 in conference games. And, and Hamlin, St. Olaf, Augsburg, and Gustavus Adolphus, the four teams that they beat in that stretch, are four of the bottom five in scoring in the MIAC. The other, Carlton. St. John's shut them out earlier in the season. Um yeah, so perhaps this should have been the misleading stat of the week. Sorry about that. What do you have? Mary Harden Baylor's 560 rushing yards against Bellhaven. Got to be some kind of record, right? It's only the fourth best all-time mark for a, for a crew team. And that team, uh, remember, that program's only been around since 1998. Their team record is 613 rushing yards at Mississippi College in 2007. So the 560 from Saturday, it's not even close to the D3 team record of 730 rushing yards. Uh, set by Maine Maritime against Coast Guard in 2009. I remember that game well, but I don't remember how quickly it went. That uh, I have to go back and uh, check the uh, the time of game on that one. Um, we're up to the part where we talk about how well or poorly Frank did in quick hits. Okay, maybe the rest of us too. Um, it was another pretty good w- uh, week in quick hits, actually, so there aren't too many bad predictions to mention. I'll take my medicine on Eureka. Devils did not win the UMAC on Saturday, losing to Northwestern. I'm still going to, however, uh, cling to that consolation prize that I predicted Eureka would go 8-2 and two this season when I wrote up the UMAC in kickoff, and that is where they ended. So, uh, Keith, give us the good news. Well, good predictions from quick hits. Everybody correctly picked uh, one of the top 25 upsets as four people picked Salisbury and two picked St. Lawrence. Dave McHugh was the closest on number of passing yards for Bellhaven against Mary Harden Baylor. But if we went by Price's right rules, closest without going over, as we often do, it would be Pat picking 347. Woo-hoo. Frank and I each picked Husson to clinch a bid, which deserves a hat tip because we also needed SUNY Maritime to beat Mount Ida to make that happen, and the privateers pulled it off with a field goal with nine seconds left. Ryan Tips predicted Huntington would move into the regional rankings. Frank picked Husson, Pat picked Redlands, and come back to the site on Wednesday to find out if any of those were correct. All right, we're actually not too far away from finishing this thing off in an hour. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do it, but uh, it's time for the two-minute drill. Your two-minute drill All right. begins now. It starts now, yes, exactly. Uh, and uh, it starts, uh, in my case, uh, I want to start it off with Ithaca, which uh, sent Mike Welch off a winner to his final Cortica Jug game. His last home game at uh, Butterfield Stadium as head coach of the Bombers was a 7-0 win against Buffalo State. Stevenson honored its seniors after its final home game, which I guess is a great idea, unless you blow an 11-point lead to a 2-6 and six team and then have to stand out there on the field with your parents and smile when you want to be in the locker room throwing your helmet or punching a locker. Not that you should do those things. Yeah, yeah, that hurts. Uh, Wesleyan looked a little like Mount Union in terms of line score on Saturday. They rolled out to a 56-14 lead on Williams, coasted to a 59-14 win. I looked through the play-by-play, though, Keith. I didn't see Wesleyan kicking any field goals on third down. We talk about the big games, but we're a full-service podcast, so on the other end of the spectrum, besides that TCNJ Southern Virginia game, there was Alfred State getting its first win of the season, 21-7 against Maranatha Baptist. 
Full service podcast in New Jersey, at least. Full service podcast. Self-service everywhere else. Uh, let's see. Wisconsin lacrosse is one game away from doing what we suggested it might, finishing 5-5 five and five after a 5-0 and oh start. Uh, lacrosse was handled on Saturday, 51-29 by Oshkosh, and finishes the uh, season coming up next week uh, at Platteville, which was uh, previously mentioned. I guess I should mention also in Oregon. Oregon, we're also a full-service podcast. Keith, Funny. We, I was wondering if you were going to pull that out. <laughs> we got 30 seconds left. Why don't we uh, bank that for some other time? How about that? We, yeah, well, I'll use those next week. <laughs> we've got some key games that uh, we talked about uh, earlier, uh, ones that you want to watch as a uh, as a, a team that needs an at-large bid. We mentioned the St. John's-Concordia-Moorhead game. That's a big game, obviously. You want to root for uh, Concordia-Moorhead there, we think. Uh, Salisbury at Frostburg, um, that's already a, a rivalry game, but you want to root for Salisbury in that one, I guess. It doesn't completely eliminate the NJAC from taking an at-large bid, but uh, definitely possible. And, of course, uh, it's also a big week for rivalries. Yeah, well, the the Randolph-Macon Hampton-Sydney game has a uh, potentially has a title on the line. Um, or I guess it definitely has one on the line, may or may not be clinched. Uh, Mona Bell game. Um, they're, they're really a, a bunch of great rivalry games and, and that take place uh, this week from you know, everywhere from the Franklin Hanover victory bell uh, all the way down. But there are a couple where uh, that don't have any playoff implications, and that's uh, Trinity and Wesleyan and uh, Amherst Williams in the uh, in the NESCAC. These are some of the oldest rivals in D3. Amherst Williams, the oldest rivalry in D3. But Probably won't be much of a game this year because Williams is uh, on some hard times. Amherst a little bit down this year, but uh, probably looking to finish on a high note. Yeah, I mean, Amherst needs to win that game just to get to 500, Keith. Yeah, and, and that's those that conference has been Amherst, Williams, uh, and then occasionally Trinity, or I guess for a long time Trinity, and occasionally Middlebury uh, for a long time. And, and now this season, it's uh, the Trinity-Wesleyan game looms pretty large. Um, we've got a lot of stuff coming up this week. Uh, we've already mentioned it, of course, uh, and uh, we're going to get another set of regional rankings on Wednesday afternoon. I will have those for you as soon as uh, they come out, including the information about uh, strength of schedule numbers and our little notes and stuff, the stuff that you won't get on uh, when you're looking at it on NCA.com. I'm just saying, we print them. Come read them from us um, because, you know, we know what we're doing. Um what else? Uh, so we're going to use those uh, as the basis, of course, for a projection Wednesday night going into Thursday morning to see what a, a, a mock bracket might look like um, based off of that. Uh, we've got, of course, our full slate of columns this week. We'll have a play of the week coming up uh, later today on Monday afternoon. So uh, keep your eye out for that and the all the other things going on. Of course, as we get you into Selection Sunday, we'll... Uh, of course, have the rest of those automatic bids will be handed out on Saturday. So we'll uh, we'll keep you up to date on all of that with uh, coverage on game day. Uh, we'll have another projected bracket with all the final results on Saturday night going into Sunday. Uh, Sunday, you know, feel free to uh, uh, debate us on Twitter about those all day because that's all we have to do until the uh, selection show comes up on a Sunday evening. So keep an eye out for all of that stuff because that is what we do. We cover Division Three football, and this is the time of the season to follow it 
here. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 161 for the week of November 7th, 2016. Thanks for listening and uh, tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it, leaving a review. That'll help other football fans find it. And thanks for following Division Three Football on d3football.com. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks to our guest this week, Frank Rossi of In the Huddle, along with Hobart quarterback Shane Sweeney. And, uh, and also thanks to Hobart Sports Information Director Ken DeBolt for time and effort on this edition of the show. And of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host Keith McMillan. Catch us every week from now through December 19th, then monthly in the offseason. And always remember to use the D3FB hashtag on your tweets and Instagram posts. And, and if you haven't voted yet, I'm not talking about voting in our poll. I'm not talking about stuff on the front page. If you haven't voted in this you know, national election that's coming up on Tuesday, go out and vote. Make sure to exercise your right to vote because otherwise, what's democracy all about? I totally thought you were talking about play of the week. <laughs> Vote for play of the week, but that's a that's a three hour window on Sunday nights. This is your future we're talking about. Sure, it's gonna be a lot longer than three hours. <laughs> <laughs>